Bibles, let's turn to the book of Matthew. Even though it's the book of Esther, I want to start in the book of Matthew. And again, we're just going book by book. And it's, I've kind of liked this Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It got me recalibrated for that one book a week. I know I'm hitting Job and Psalms and Proverbs soon. I don't know if that's possible, but I do want to keep it like an overview so it's not like too deep a dive. There'll be a place for a deeper dive and like a an institute setting, but I do want to just give you like a workable framework. So these books have helped me recalibrate to try to glean out the essentials and really give you that uh, working understanding of what the book is about and a little preaching in there too to strengthen your heart. And I'm going to just tell you, I have never studied the book of Esther. Like your pages might be stuck together in the book of Esther, but it's not like the book you turn to automatically for devotion or doctrine. But I have gotten such a blessing out of the book of Esther uh, the stuff I'm going through in my personal life, even just being a little hobbled and looking up and being like, Lord, what are you doing? Like the book of Esther coinciding, I just like had to almost laugh because uh, the Lord has a, is teaching us all something. So on your sheet, we see there's 10 chapters, 167 verses, 5,633 words. The time period is 521 BC, roughly to 509 BC. What it's really showing you what happened to the Jews who remained in Babylon and Persia. Ezra and Nehemiah shows you what they're doing when they go back to Jerusalem, but only a remnant went back to Jerusalem. What happened to everybody else? So this is that vantage point of those Jews that were still in Gentile occupation. Um, The author is possibly Mordecai. I didn't put it down on the sheet because I wouldn't like hang my hat on that or die on that hill, but that's what some speculate. But the key idea I would die on that hill. The key idea of Esther, which we'll say again and again, is the reality of divine providence. That even though when you don't see God moving, God is working. Uh, There there are no coincidences with God. We are not subject to blind random chance like the world prescribes to, oh, you got lucky. No, I didn't get lucky. I I got God. All right. So it's a big difference. So Esther is the, the reason I say that is Esther is the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned. Run it through. There is no mention to Lord or God or anything like that. And some people say, well, why is that? Well, here's the takeaway. Here's why. Because Esther pictures the time when God is hiding himself from the nation of Israel. Right? We're in this time period now where God, Israel, I mean... Where are you, God? I mean, you think some of those folks at Dachau and Auschwitz and Treblinka probably looked up and said, Lord, God, Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai, like, where are you? And God is kind of hiding himself now in this times of the Gentiles from his nation, and he will return like he returns in this book. But that truth is exhibited in the book of Matthew, because in the book of Matthew, we see the kingdom gets hidden from Israel when they reject the king's invitation. And what happens is in Matthew chapter 13 to 25, you get all these parables. When Jesus Christ begins to get rejected by Israel, you know what Jesus starts doing? He starts speaking in parables. You know what parables are? They're dark sayings. They're sayings that deliberately hide the truth and obscure the meaning. And look at Matthew chapter 11. Here's a little uh, outtake from the book of, of Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, you see the king's invitation to Israel. He says, 
Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we like that verse for our devotions and our heart. It's a good street preaching verse. It's a good verse for the rescue mission. Good verse to talk to somebody about Christ. But you know what it is? Really, doctrinally, it's the king of Israel inviting Israel to receive him. That's the invitation. Now, you go to chapter 12, you see the king and his kingdom rejected by Israel. The invitation to Israel in chapter 11 and the rejection by Israel in chapter 12. Look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 22 to 24. The Bible says, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devil. So there are the leaders of Israel rejecting the king, saying, You're a devil. Now what happens? Chapter 13. Chapter 13. Interesting chapter. The king and his kingdom start getting hidden from Israel for the rest of the book. The rest of the book, the king goes into parables and dark sayings. Look what happens in 13.1. Now 12, he's been rejected. 13.1. The same day went Jesus out of the house. You see that? A picture of Jesus stepping away from the house of Israel and sat by the seaside and great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore and he spake many things unto them in parables. From that moment on, when he's rejected by the leaders right there, he starts speaking in parables, dark sayings. He starts hiding the truth from them. There are 12 parables about the kingdom of heaven that are just drive the Pharisees nuts because they've rejected him and he starts pulling the wool over their own eyes. So that's a good over. Now you go to the book of Esther, okay? Go to the book of Esther. If the pages stick together, just don't make a show of it. Just slowly peel them apart. All right, Esther. Uh, start in chapter 1. So, in this book, Jesus Christ is pictured as our Redeemer, like Esther, willing to risk all to deliver us from the enemy. And I put up here on the board, um, the characters in Esther really help us understand the significance of the book and what's happening in the book in terms of big picture. So, we've got the king, Ahasuerus, I think that's how you name, say his name. He's God the Father. He's going to picture God the Father for us. Then you've got a queen named Vashti who gets deposed and put away. That's the Gentile nations because she's a Gentile king. You've got Esther, a Jew. Uh, she pictures the Jews in tribulation because she goes through trouble and she's a Jewess. We've got Mordecai who's going to picture a Jew in the church age kind of seemingly insignificant and not really acknowledged for who he is. And then we've got Haman, who's going to be our Antichrist. And we'll see how all these characters play in. It's important you know the characters. And um, the last thing I put on the board is how the books that we've seen so far in this little chunk of the Bible all picture what God is doing with Israel during the times of the Gentiles, where we are right now today, almost over, right? Watch, watch. I don't know, if this doesn't like rock you, this kind of stuff rocks me and me, reminds me that God wrote the Bible. Uh, Ezra was the book of return. We saw them going back to the land. Nehemiah was the rebuilding. So remember we said like 1918, the Jews start returning to the land. 1948 to the present, they've been rebuilding. They've been establishing their borders again. Esther is the restoration where God goes from Gentile to Jew again. 
Right now, he's all about the Gentiles, but that time is closing. And there's coming a day when he's going to direct his focus again back to the nation that he's going to restore. Then right after Esther, we've got the book of Job, which is the refinement. We've got the suffering and the purging and the tribulation that Job goes through to picture what Israel's going to go through. And then what do we have next? Psalms. I put Psalm. Psalms, right? The book of the rain. King David returns, and the king and his kingdom make their entrance again into your Bible. What a book, huh? The story is told not only in the books, but the way the books are laid out. That's what we call a pre-millennial order of the books that you did not find in the Greek and the Hebrew. You didn't get them in that order. God put it in the English for you and put it in an order for you that you could really take away some amazing truths. So, um, And as it's noted on your book, uh, the breakdown of Esther really kind of breaks down around these three feasts. Um, chapters 1 to 2, the Feast of Ahasuerus. Uh, that would be the direction of God. That's where we see him turning to Israel again. Chapters 3 to 7 would be the Feast of Esther. That's the distress of God's people. That's where you see them in trouble. And then chapters 8 to 10, or the feast is the Feast of Purim. That's the deliverance from God for His people. That's the triumph. So we've got the direction, the distress, and the deliverance. We've got the turn, the trouble, and the triumph. I like when it's alliterated. It helps my brain. All right. So let's dive into some Bible pictures now uh, and big ideas from the book of Esther. Let's look at chapter 1. Right, Chapter 1. Um, first big idea from the book of Esther is how Esther remove, uh, Hasserah, sorry, removes Vashti from queen. That is huge, right? To quote our former president, huge, right? That is a big thing. That is a picture of God turning back to the nation of Israel. And what's happening in chapter 1 is a great picture of what God is doing with His church while he's turning back to Israel. Because if you read Esther 1.5, read it with me. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, I want you to just bear with me a little here, because what you're going to see here in chapter 1 is an amazing picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This marriage supper of the Lamb that's going on in the king's house while things are going to start getting ready to turn back to Israel. Want to see it? Verse number 6. In his palace, while they're having this feast, there's white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and of silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black um, Marble, right? That is a picture in verse number 6 of the Christian's reward at the judgment seat of Christ. You know what we're getting? Fine linen. You want to go to Revelation chapter 19? I'll show you. I think I just made up a number there. Revelation 19. <laughs> Revelation chapter 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. After the rapture, after that judgment seat of Christ has happened, as we're getting ready to return with Him, we see this marriage supper of the Lamb take place. And it says over there in Revelation 19, verse 7, this is a great day. Oh, aren't you looking forward to this day? I got to tell you, my kids aren't going to like this, but we're having dinner yesterday. We're having a good time just chatting. I said, if the Lord came back right now, 
I'd be a happy man. Sitting with my favorite people in the world, they're just telling me, I want to get married. I want to get married. I just sit with my favorite people in the world, just like, lift off, let's go. I'll meet you in the air, guys. It's okay. But I I like to be together, but I definitely want to be with them. Um, 19.7. Let us be glad and rejoice. That's what they're going to be doing in heaven when you come home. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him because He's worthy of all glory. Even though they're marveling at you, they're praising God, uh, praising the Lamb. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife hath made herself ready. Are you getting ready? And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in, there it is, fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That's not the righteousness that Christ gave you when you got saved. That's the righteousness that you've been sowing and reaping since you've gotten saved. And rest assured, your Savior is going to reward all the sacrifice, all the tears, all the submission, all the consecration, all the not my will but thine be done. You think God the righteous judge is going to let your sacrifice be in vain? He wouldn't even let a cup of water be done in vain in his name. So rest assured, brethren, you're going through stuff now, but there's coming a day when that's going to be the fine linen that you wear at the judgment seat of Christ. And it says if you jump down to verse number 14... It says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The Lamb's wife is arrayed in fine linen at the marriage supper, and that bride wears fine linen when she returns with him. Amen and amen. I can almost see it. I hope you can. Uh, Esther, go back to Esther. So that fine linen, it's interesting, in the king's house, he's having a feast. Just before he turns back and deposes the Gentile queen, he's turning back, getting ready to turn back to that Jewish queen, and he has this feast in the king's house, and there's fine linen. And you know what else there is? Let me go to Esther, because my pages might be stuck together too. Esther, chapter 1, verse number 6. Look at the rest of that verse. Not Ecclesiastes, Esther. All right, Esther 1, 6. Look at the end, it says... There's gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. I'm seeing some gold, silver, and precious stones there, are you? You know what those are? Your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Gold, silver, precious stones. Now go to verse number 7 in case you're a little skeptical. Look what happens next. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. They're drinking a special wine at this feast. They're drinking a royal wine given them by the king. You ever read in your Bible that marriage at Canaan? You ever read it? You know what Jesus served at that marriage? A new wine, a special wine. Did you ever study what day that marriage was, that wedding was? It says in John 2, verse 1, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. You know what the third day is? 1,000 years since Jesus came, 2,000 years since Jesus came. On the third day, brethren, there's a wedding. And at that wedding, your king is serving some new wine, some special wine. He says, go to Matthew chapter 26. Let me show you something else. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This wine will not get you drunk. 
This wine will just get you shouting joy, I guess. Matthew 26. You won't have to be peeled off the floor after drinking this wine. You'll be jumping through the ceiling. Uh, Matthew 26. At that wedding on the third day, Jesus gave them new wine, royal wine. Matthew 26, 29. You know, before Jesus Christ checked out, he said he was going to give his disciples wine in his kingdom. 26, 29. He says, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. Notice that the grapes were right there. It was not fermented wine. He said, this fruit of the vine. He took those grapes and he squeezed them in the cup. It was new wine, not, not intoxicating, not fermented, no alcohol, new wine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen? So that royal wine we see back in Esther is a picture of the new wine in the coming kingdom on the third day when the wedding has taken place. See how your Bible just starts? All the pieces got to start coming together. We've been laying brick, and we've been laying all kinds of foundational things, but hopefully when we start to swing it around, you're going to start to see this connects to that, and that connects to this, and that's how you build a doctrine. Here a little there a little. Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, and then you see all those principles come together and you have some wow moments. I pray you have some wow moments. Now go back to Esther chapter 1. Now let's go back there. Let's see what happens now. So this great feast has taken place. Picture of the marriage supper, picture of the church being rewarded. And it says in Esther 1.12 that, you know, Ahasuerus, on a human standpoint, starts getting all types break down, by the way. So Ahasuerus being a bit of a knucklehead. Well, what does that signify? I don't know. I think he was just being a knucklehead because types break down. And he wants to show off Vashti. And it says right there in verse 12, But the queen Vashti refused. The Gentile queen refused. Now, Vashti refuses to obey. That does have a picture for me. You know what that says to me? That's a picture of the Gentile nations refusing to submit to God. You know what God says? You look at verse number 19. You know what they decide to do? If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written from the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. The book of Hebrews talks about the word better a lot. Better than she. God the Father. You know what God the Father is going to say to the world, and he's starting to say it now? You know what he's saying to the world? Hey, Gentiles, you're done with me? And I'm done with you, right? God has turned to the Gentiles. He's given this great age, uh, this great time. But you know what? When the Gentiles continue to turn their back on God and refuse, like Vashti refused to Hasaras, you know what God the Father's going to say? All right, I'm going back to Israel then. And that's what we're seeing happening, people. Now go to chapter 2. Chapter, does that make sense? All right, chapter 2, all right? The Bible is your history book in advance. Isn't it funny, all these Gentiles? They get around at their G20, and they're this and that. And, and they think, they think they're going to rule the world someday. And you as a Bible believer, and they got their little cabals, and their little cults, and their little circles, and I'm sure they got their little New Age knuckleheads, and they're going to incant this, and do that, and bring this, and do that, and get this power, and commune with Lucifer, and they think that light bearer is really going to give them something else. He's going to bust his head. The real ruler is coming, and all those Gentile nations, God's going to turn things upside down. He changes the times and the seasons. 
the Gentiles have had a long season, and guess what? He's going to change the times and the seasons, and Israel is going to come back into God's focus, and you're going to see God's program change. It's not always going to be like this. It wasn't always like this. You think when David and Solomon and Elijah were on the earth that the Gentiles were a big deal? How come your Bible doesn't talk so much about those Gentile nations? You studied them in school, though, didn't you? You studied about Persian empires, and you studied about Chinese dynasties, and you studied about Ming dynasty, and you studied about this dynasty and that dynasty, and God doesn't waste a word on some of them. You know what God says about the nations? They're a drop in the bucket. They're sitting around at G20. God says, what are my people doing? He's not interested. He says, change the channel, Gabriel. Show me something my church is doing. This stuff is boring, boring. He's going to turn them upside down. Uh, now, let's look at the way that happens. That was not in the notes. Chapter 2. A Jewish queen takes the throne, and Israel again becomes the focus of God's work. Let's look at Esther chapter 2, verse 2. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him. Now, watch this. Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Higi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things be for purification be given them. Notice, please, once the Gentile queen has been deposed, once the king turns from Vashti, we have a reference now to virgins. Virgins virgins. In Matthew 25, the Bible says, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, right? Those virgins picture the tribulation saints that come after God is done with the church. Just an interesting coincidence, I'm sure. And this is just one great picture of God turning his attention to Israel to reestablish them as a nation. Please notice verse four, and let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen Instead of Vashti, the Lord wanted a queen in place of Vashti. You understand what's coming? He's already started to make the turn, people. He's already started to make the turn. Right? The Gentile superpowers are not so super anymore. And the ones that really are superpowers are the most crazy, megalomaniacal, New World Order type of nut jobs that you don't want to model yourselves after. So it's turning. God's, now, think about what God did. God set Israel aside to give the Gentiles a chance. He gave them political power way back around the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave them spiritual privilege after they rejected Christ. The Gentiles have had their time. And God is now going to start setting the Gentiles aside to turn His attention back to Israel. If you're a Gentile, praise the Lord. Don't get proud. Don't get... Hey, that's how God's doing it. God's got a reason for it. Now look at verse number 5. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. He's an awesome dude. The son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Mordecai was carried away to Babylon into the captivity. So you see what Mordecai pictures? That's why he pictures the Jew in the church age. Because Mordecai up until this point has been seemingly insignificant. 
He has no recognition. He has no prestige. Think about it. The Jews don't, the nation of Israel doesn't even have much standing in the United Nations. The Bible says that Israel would not be numbered among the nations. God predicted that in Moses' writing. In the book of Numbers, he said things like that. And you see that right now, what are they? A little thing the size of Rhode Island? Right? I mean, who are these people? This cup of trembling? These, you know, these feeble Jews, like they said in Nehemiah? That, that's how they're looked at now. That's how Mordecai was looked at. He's like, who is this guy that won't bow? The Jews today, who are, what are these little vagabonds, this, this little nation, this, these troublesome people? That's how they've been looked at. Let's just wipe them off the face of the earth. Let's push them into the sea. That's what people have said over the last 60 or 70 years. We had a German-Austrian nutjob try to eradicate them, right? We had a, a guy over there in Iran years ago that said, we're going to drive them into the sea, right? These insignificant people. And most people now, what do they do with Jewish people? Mock them, make jokes about them, look down on them, right? They're these insignificant Mordecais, right? You know what Mordecai's name means? It means two things. Little man and bitter bruising. Isn't that the Jews' experience for the last thousands of years, right? Little, not a big people, not a, not a grand people. We're not talking about like Russia or, or, or China, right? We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about a little people, small group of people that have been facing the bitter bruising that the Father has been letting them experience in their rejection of Him. Now, I want to give you some, that's, I'm giving you all these pictures and some of your heads are spinning. Let me give you something practical in verse 12 of chapter 2. Let me give you a practical thing here. 2.12, it says, they're getting uh, Esther ready to come to the king. Now, when every maid's turn was to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been 12 months, according to the manner of the woman, for so were the days of their purification accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying the women. Do you want to see what's a great practical note right here? That before you go see the king, there's two things that got to happen. You've got to die to self before you please the king. Six months with myrrh. You know what myrrh was? An embalming fluid that you used with corpses in funerals. You know what that's a picture of? Dying to self. You know what came after that? Sweet odors, those spices of a sacrifice that would produce that sweet-smelling Savior. You know what the practical takeaway for that is, Christian? Before the sweetness of your sacrifice can be enjoyed by the king, there must first come the death to self. You've got to die to self first before your sacrifice will be a sweet savor unto God. You've got to say, Lord, I'm crucified. Lord, I'm dead. Lord, not my will, but thine be done. That's hard stuff, brother, I know. That's hard stuff, sister, I know. That's why it's called the living sacrifice. It'd be easy to go to, like, you know, Laos or Vietnam or North Korea, go street, preach on a street corner. Boom, you could die right there for Christ. But God says, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice is it always wants to get off the altar. But God says you got to just lay your life down. Let God consecrate your life. And when you spend some time dying to self, you know what God says? That's a sweet savor. That's a sweet odor. That reminds me of my son. That's a practical takeaway. Now chapters 3 to 9, we get into after Vashti is replaced by Esther... Haman 
The Antichrist shows up. Isn't that interesting? After this whole switcheroo is made, right, and God goes from Gentile to Jew again, notice Haman shows up on the scene. Now, he was there all along. But his presence is really well known. And there's like a little people debate, like, will we know who the Antichrist is? I'm inclined to say yes, because Haman was there. But his prominence came after the church or the Gentiles were put away. I would reckon that the Antichrist is probably very well alive right now. And maybe there will be a day where some of us might say, and I wonder about this guy, I wonder if it's that guy. You remember, John is a picture of the church, and this is not, this is me all speculating, don't pick up a rock outside and hit me. But John, who's a picture of the church, is sitting at that Last Supper saying, Lord, who is he? and get something revealed to him to identify him. Now, he didn't understand it in the moment, but eventually you could understand who it was. So maybe, maybe, and again, it's just speculation, but it's healthy speculation. Maybe there will be a time when a small group of faithful believers will start to realize, maybe it's this guy. Maybe he's got, maybe that's the sop, you know, the piece of bread that you dip, you know, the one that's going to, the one that's holding the bag. Watch the money, people. Watch the money. Watch the money. The love of money is the root of all evil. That's where you see the word perdition pop up in 1 Timothy 6, connected with the love of money. The Antichrist is called the son of perdition. When you figure it out, let me know. But just watch the money because Judas had the bag. And when Judas was going to betray Jesus Christ, they thought he was doing a financial transaction. So somehow this money and worship have to get all wrapped up together and get everybody ready. But just watch the money. Watch the money. Money answereth all things. Money is the answer uh, to who that man of sin might be. But just, again, I'm speculating here. Disclaimer, just me musing. Not in my notes at all. Brian will tell you when he takes them. They're not in there at all. But just food for thought. Just run with it a little further you want. Don't get too crazy. But the Antichrist is a fascinating study. He's the second most popular character in your Bible. And uh, there's some little nuggets here we could take away about Haman. He shed some light on the Antichrist. Not a lot. Some of you are leaning in like, how many hairs are in the armpit? I don't know. But there's some things about the uh, Antichrist here. Look at verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus, notice, after these things, he's promoted. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Please notice that he's likely, likely, the descendant of Israel's enemy, because it says he's he's an Agagite, an Agagite. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. So maybe he's related to that group of people that were cursed by God. And it says in verse number one that he gets his seat set above everybody else. He gets an exalted seat. Doesn't the Antichrist sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God? Doesn't he sit in the temple showing that he's God and exalted, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God and worshipped? He's got a high seat right here. And that's what Lucifer's always been after. You think he wants your money. You think he wants your time. You know what Lucifer wants? He wants worship. He wants worship. You know what these crazy Luciferians do? You know what they do? They worship him. They, he, he promises them everything if they, are you getting chills? If they worship him, right? 
Um, I often think about the leaders of this world. I often think about how they got that power, how they got that prestige, how they got that elevation. He said, hey man, he told Jesus, I give it to whomever I will. He's the God of this world and he doles it out to the people that will fall down and worship him. Lucifer said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wants that exalted seat. Didn't Jesus say, watch out for people that want the highest seats? Right? Didn't Jesus call those people serpents, a generation of vipers? You're of your father, the devil. Mm-mm. Esther chapter 3, verse 2. When you figure it out, you let me know. Esther 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, oh, man, this just revs me up, this guy. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. You go, Mordecai, you go. You know what he wanted there in verse 2? He wanted worship. I mean, he told the Son of God, fall down and worship me. You think he's bashful about telling anybody else that? If he told the Son of God, I'll give you everything you fall down and worship me, and Jesus had to rebuke him and said, Oh, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Right? But you don't think he would tell the king of this one, and the prince of that one, and the leader of this one? You don't think that same spirit would not be moving in their hearts to worship him and amass that power and get all those kingdoms of the world? You haven't read your Bible very closely. And you see what happens when Mordecai, and that's why the Antichrist can't stand that remnant of Jews. Because they're a little bunch of nothings, but he wants to be worshipped as God, and they just won't do it. Because they've got enough Bible and know enough about God and hear enough preaching from Moses and Elijah in the tribulation that they're not going to worship the beast. And that drives them crazy. You see verse 5? And when Haman saw... Now, let's read uh, verse 5. Now, when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, I bet you every Joe Schmo in that kingdom was bowing to Haman when they saw him. But Mordecai wasn't, and it stripped his gears. And look at it says, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Remember Nebuchadnezzar sets up that golden image? Everybody bows down. They strike up the band, they start the bongos, and everybody just bows down except those Hebrew children. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar's like visage, his countenance, just got full of wrath and rage and was transformed, and he was like a man possessed. You ever think about that spirit why it's after us Christians? We're the minority of the minority. You can marry who you want to marry now. You can live where you want to live now. You can claim what you want to claim on your taxes now. You can do all this stuff now. But the fact that there's somebody left that won't bow and won't bend to that ungodly agenda, your presence drives them mad. Madness they're filled with. Madness, right? You would take people and throw them into a furnace of fire? Because you didn't bow down to my statue or my whatever? Think about that. I got the whole kingdom over here, Haman, all bowing down, and he's going to plot to get Mordecai executed? And that's str- you ever think about how strange that is? If you had the command of 50 million people loving and adoring you, and one guy doesn't support you, you're going to go crazy? 
No, you'd be like, all right, well, how about it, man? Enjoy the Benari. But that's the devil, man. That's that satanic, satanic spirit. And look what happens in verse 5 and 6. Six, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Oh, he's a Jew. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Like Hitler, just like scapegoating Israel, right? Scapegoating the Jews. Those Jews, he said, are a parasite in the body of nations. They need to be extracted like a tumor or something. That's how he wrote about them in Mein Kampf. He called them a a parasite of sickness in the body of nations that got people turned against them. And here he is ready to destroy a whole people. That same spirit, man. That same spirit. It ain't so long ago and far away. We had an antichrist in 1940. He was an antichrist, right? He was one of the best ones. Probably the last one before the antichrist shows up was Hitler, right? Now keep reading with me. Verse 13. Watch this. In verse number 13. See this? And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill. Isn't that what the thief comes to do? And to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month. Please notice that the 13th verse, the 13th day, that's rebellion, you see on the 12th month, that's Israel, this command goes out. The 13th day, the 13th verse, this rebel goes after the people of Israel who are always pictured by the number 12. And if you read verse 13, go to chapter 4, I should say. What do we do? Now we're in a, now we're in a crisis. Because now Esther is, you know, Esther's kind of like the queen that they don't know she's a Jewess. And Mordecai's like, yo, cousin Esther, come over here. Uh, you got to say something for your people. And she said, if I go in there when I'm not supposed to go in there, I could die. He says, listen, you got to go in there. This is a the little talk they're going to have here. Look at chapter 4, verse 13, because this is the right attitude during a trial. This is a great passage of God's Word. It says, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house, more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return. Mordecai this answer, go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and eat, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day, I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish." That, to me, is amazing. I see two amazing things about attitude there. Number one, Mordecai. You know what Mordecai shows me? The confidence in a trial. God's deliverance is going to come. You just want to be on the right side when it comes. Because, listen, in the tribulation, not every Jew is going to side with God. Many are going to go with the Antichrist and perish. So there's Mordecai saying, listen, you, the deliverance is coming. Jehovah's coming. The, the, the rescue is coming. You want to be on the right side of that, Esther. So I see the confidence that Mordecai had. And then I see in Esther the courage that you and I are supposed to have. Amen. Right? Hey, if I do it God's way and I perish, so be it. If I perish, I perish. But I'm going to do this God's way and stand for God and take that step of faith. The question for us is, do you have the confidence and do you have the courage in a trial? If you're doing right and God puts you through a trial, the deliverance is coming. 
Will you let God use you to be the vehicle of that deliverance? Praise the Lord. Esther chapter 7 verse 9. So, I'm going to get to 6 in a little bit. Chapter 6, some stuff happens. In chapter 7, some more stuff happens and Haman gets exposed as this villain. And Haman is taken in his own snare. See 7, 9. Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, uh, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Notice, please, that Haman is taken in his own mischief. He's taken in his own snare. Please notice that Haman, the type of Antichrist, is hung. Like Absalom is hung in a tree. Like Judas is hung. Right? Now go to Psalm chapter 7. Let me show you something. There's a good cross-reference for that. Like God said at the second coming, He would bruise the serpent's head. Right? Psalm 7 verse 14. Want to see what God says about the wicked? 7.14, he says, Behold, speaking about the wicked, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief. Sounds like Haman, doesn't it? 7.14, And brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own H-E-A. D, upon his head. God said at my second coming of Jesus Christ, I'm going to bruise the serpent's head. Right? You follow a lot of types of Antichrist. Abimelech, uh, Sisera, Absalom, Judas, here Haman. They got a wound to their head. Something happens to their head. It's wounded because he says that mischief's going to fall upon your head and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. So the wicked are taken with their own mischief. Amen, amen, amen. Esther chapter 9. Go there with me, please. Just a few stops left. Esther chapter 9. Notice something else here. Notice in Esther chapter 9, verse 10, that the ten sons of Haman are slain, like the ten kings of the Antichrist are destroyed in the tribulation. Ten sons, ten kings. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 of chapter 9, Mordecai institutes the Feast of Purim, which are lots, right? Something you like cast, right? You say why? Let's read verse 20. It says, um, 9.20, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun and as Mordecai had written unto them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had despised against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. 
them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore all the words of this letter, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained, and took upon them, and upon their seed, and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail, that they would keep these two days according to their writing, and according to their appointed time every year. Excuse me, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm the second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews, and to the hundred twenty and seven provinces of the kingdom of Hasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed according to as Mordecai the Jew, and Esther the queen had enjoined them, and as they decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Please notice that Mordecai cast lots, I'm sorry, Haman cast lots to destroy the Jews. Esther chapter 3, verse 7, he cast lots to plot his destruction of the Jews. And right there in chapter 9, verse 24, is they cast lots... Purim, because their enemy cast lots. You see? All right? They remember Haman's defeat by casting lots, because that's what the enemy tried to use to destroy them, so they just cast lots back to show that God overturned what he was going to try to do to them. And uh, chapter 10, verse 3, the last verse is great. It says, for Mordecai the Jew. Notice how he's prominent now. He's not just Mordecai, he's Mordecai the Jew. He's not hidden anymore, he's not insignificant anymore, he's Mordecai the Jew. Was Now that word is kind of used as a slur, right? Jew. But here it's not a slur, it's a title. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. After all that trouble... God gives his people a happy ending. Isn't that a blessing? After all that trouble. Now, I got just two big ideas from the book of Esther. Go to Romans 11 for the first one. Two big takeaways. Hopefully this will be a blessing to you. We'll end on these two big ideas. Romans, and they're not long ideas, but they're big ideas. Romans 11, verse number 7. First big idea you got to learn from the book of Esther, or at least I take away from the book of Esther. If you set God aside when He speaks to you, the Lord will set you aside. Amen. He talks to you and you don't listen, God will just put you on the shelf. Yep. Or just kind of say, all right, you stay over there in the corner. Or, you know, anything else. Look at Romans 11. Amen? Amen? What's that? So maybe a valley. Maybe a valley. Could, yeah, could be, could be a valley. Amen, amen. Romans 11, verse 7, it says, Speaking of the Gentiles and Israel, what then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them, Israel, the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Israel rejected Christ, and God blinded his own people. You take that in? He had been preparing them for 4,000 years for this Messiah, and they reject him, and God turns away from them temporarily, actually lets their eyes be darkened and blinded. He sets them aside because why? Because they didn't want to listen. 
The gospel was given to them first, but they didn't want it. So God said, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. Now, we're the Gentiles. We're the recipients of that grace now, right? We're enjoying that turn. But guess what? If we do the same thing that Israel did, God's like, I'm going to turn away from you and turn back to them. See verse, uh, verse 11, verse 13? He says, I speak to you Gentiles... Inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. So what we're going to read now is directed to the Gentiles as a group, not individuals who are saved, but the Gentiles as a group. And read down by verse number uh, 19. He says, Well, thou wilt then say, The branches, meaning Israel, were broken off, that I might be grafted in. You might think, wow, God's, you know, some people think that way. Well, God's done with Israel. Look at us, Gentiles, we've replaced them. No, 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 no. Well, that's true, he says, but because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, Israel, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell Israel, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, if you listen, Gentiles, to what God's trying to tell you, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Not you individually, but he's talking to the Gentiles. He says, hey, Gentile nations, you don't want to listen to me like Israel didn't want to listen to me? You think you've got some kind of special standing? I turned aside from my own people. You don't think I'll cast you out and cut you off? Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You want to see him do it? He's going to do it in the tribulation. He's not going to blind the Jews in the tribulation. He's going to blind the Gentiles in the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then shall that wicked, capital W, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Hallelujah. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie who's doing the deceiving who's doing the deluding god that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness in the great tribulation the lord's going to blind the gentiles you know what i'm not going to waste my time doing i'm not hiding bibles in my house i'm not writing tracts what to do if you miss the rapture you know why because it's going to be a few that get saved in the tribulation. The people that, don't, that go into the tribulation that are living today are people that rejected the truth, loved unrighteousness, and it's going to be an awfully small sliver of those. you got to get them saved now, people, because most of them are going to perish later. Because the unrighteousness and the deceit on their heart now, it's only going to be full-blown, exacerbated in the tribulation. It's not going to be like, oh no, where did all those Christians go? No, the Bible says in Revelation, they're going to be giving gifts to each other and making merry. Revelation 11. They're going to be having a grand old time when they see Elijah and Moses dead in the street. They're going to be thrilled and ecstatic that that preaching is finally over. They're not fans now, and they don't get saved. They're not going to be fans later. They're not going to be like, oh, what does this mean? Oh, I read about this once. I read Left Behind. No, they're going to be deceived. 
Because God's going to say, you didn't want it now? I'm going to deceive you. I'm going to let you believe a lie. I'm going to let you believe that guy sitting in Jerusalem is really the Christ. That's going to be the lie. That Christ didn't come in the flesh yet. That's the lie. Who is Antichrist? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, right? He is Antichrist that denieth Father and the Son. That's going to be the lie. So, how do we make this practical? You better not turn a deaf ear when God talks to you. You better hang on every word. You better pant after every syllable. You better say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth, because God's under no obligation to speak to you twice when he spoke to you once. Now I got to give, I teach, right? And I give kids warnings. Oh, you haven't done 30 assignments. Let me send a note home. Let me call your house. Let me alert the guidance counselor. Shocker, you have a .5 average. You know, like that's a real shocker. No, they know it. They know it. I speak once, twice. God is under no obligation to speak twice. When God says it, that settles it. And you and I got to have that healthy fear of God. Josh talked about a few weeks ago. That healthy fear of God, we sit there like, Lord, what are you trying to say? There's some Christians, you could show them things about the Bible that speak to their sin, and they'll look you straight in the eyes and know it's true, and not give a flip about what God said. And they wonder why God doesn't use them, why their prayers don't get answered, why nothing happens, because God says, to this man will I look, the one that trembles at my word. God's looking for people that are looking for Him. Is that you? And second big takeaway... This one's more encouraging. That one's a little. That one was the. That one was the carrot. That was the stick. This one's the carrot. All right. Second big takeaway: God is always working, even when you can't see Him. God is always working, even when you can't see Him. You know that? God is always working. Go to uh, Esther chapter six. I know we want to see Him. We want to be able to trace His hand, but a lot of times you can't. But God is always working, even when... You know, God hasn't taken a break since that seventh day. God has been working ever since the fall. God has never says God rested. Again, Esther chapter 6. All right, let me show you this. Now, we said that Esther is the only book where God's name is not mentioned, right? Okay? A picture of God is always working, even when you can't see Him. Because you can't see God in the book of Esther. His name does not appear there. Not Lord, not God, not Adonai, not Elohim. That name is not there. But God's working there. He's working when you can't see Him. You know what Matthew Henry said? I saw this quote. I don't, don't think too fondly of Matthew Henry. He said some nice things. But Matthew Henry said, If the name of God is not here, His finger is. You see the finger of God all over the book of Esther, even though you don't see the name of God. Esther chapter 6, man, those Jews are up a creek without anything. That, that death sentence is coming. Those posts are going out. Those Jews are going to get executed all over Persia. And on that night, when all looked lost, the Lord keeps the king awake, gives him some restless sleep. You know what he decides to do? I said, I'm going to put myself to sleep. Let me go read the Chronicles. Let me go read the history books. In Esther chapter 6, verse 1, it says, On that night could not the king sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles. And they were read before the king. 
Chronicles would probably help you fall asleep too. Uh, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Big, Th- of, of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. So he finds written in these books that Mordecai was a patriot. That Mordecai actually foiled a plot to assassinate the king. And in verse 3 it says, And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And you know the rest of the story. The king Ahasuerus actually has Haman honor Mordecai. And the tables get totally turned. Why? Because God is always working even when you can't see him. God's doing something. In Esther 9, verse 22, we read there, in Esther 9, 22, we're not going to read it again, but when the enemy had cast his lots, the Lord deposed all those lots. He turned them all upside down. You know what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16? The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Right? The world may work on chance, the world may talk about luck, but God is always working. That's providence. Can you read Esther 9.22 with me? Just look at it. It says, As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day. You know what that day is when God turned the tables on them, when the enemy had cast his lots, and the Lord deposed the whole thing? You know what that is? That is an allusion to the day that God drowned Israel, drowned Pharaoh, and Israel danced. Remember when he drowned Pharaoh? He drowned his armies. You know what they did on the other side of that Red Sea? They danced. They leapt for joy. And he says, I want this day of Purim to remind you of that when the enemy was pursuing you and hounding you and all looked lost. And then God turned the tables and you guys were dancing and rejoicing. And I was even talking to Eli about it. You know, they'll they'll give each other on Purim that little um, triangular cake or what is like a pastry? Hamatash, right? I said that right? I wasn't practicing that, right? You know, it's a triangle. And I know they say it's because of Haman's ears, but you know what I think it's about? You know the Jews' land grant is a triangle, right? That big piece of land is a triangle. I find it very interesting that they're going to, you know, they think they're debating West Bank, East Bank, this, that. You know what they got? They got a big triangle coming to them from uh, where the Noah's Ark landed all the way to Ur the Chaldees, way back over to the River Nile. That big triangle is all going to be their land grant, no matter what the enemy says. And uh, it's interesting. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. I got two verses left, promise. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Look at verse number 3. This is talking about the advent of Christ. You got the first coming and the second coming in here. I'm going to show you some things about the second coming. It says, uh, when He comes, He would appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. You know what? That second coming, God's people are going to rejoice. Let's take the second coming for you. Let's take the rapture. God's Jesus Christ is going to step out into the atmosphere and say, come up hither. And you're going to start streaking across the space out there. You know what's going to happen? There's a big red dragon up there. He ain't going to be liking that you're going up there. He ain't going to like that one bit. 
Just like the Jews got out of Egypt. You know what Pharaoh, Pharaoh's, you know what God calls Pharaoh, don't you? The dragon. He calls Pharaoh the dragon. You read in Ezekiel, he calls Pharaoh a dragon. You know what that dragon did in the book of Exodus? He chased them, he chased them, and then God opened up a Red Sea, he brought them through, and then he dumped that water on top of Pharaoh, and they never had to worry about him again. That trumpet's going to sound, you're going to hear a voice come up hither, you're going to go streaking across space, and that red dragon, he's going to be chasing you, he's going to be following you, you know what God's going to do? He's going to open up the waters up there, and you're going to cross over that celestial river, you know what he's going to do? He's going to close up those waters, and that dragon ain't ever going to touch you ever again. And I think... Whether you got a bad knee or not, with that new body, you're going to leap, you're going to jump, you're going to shout. That morning is going to be turned to dancing, right? I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? How about Israel? How about the Advent? How about the second coming? They're going to be hounded by that devil, hounded by that devil, hounded by the devil, hiding out there in Selah hiding out that rock city, getting fed with manna like they got fed in the past. You know what's going to happen? He's going to come back, and just when it looks like he's surrounding them in that valley of Megiddo, and all those nations are shaking their fist at God, here comes your captain. He's going to come down with that sword, and he's going to bruise the Antichrist's head, wipe out his nations, wipe out his nations and his people, and establish everlasting righteousness and they ain't going to have to worry about him ever again. Right? You think anybody's going to be jumping around? You think any of that remnant that's been hiding out in the wilderness is going to be shouting and singing and banging some tabrets or whatever Miriam did on the other side of that Red Sea? I'm sure there's going to be some shouting and some rejoicing. But you can't see it now, can you? It looks like, where are you, God? Did you forget me, God? I don't see you here, God. What's happening? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. You know what Spurgeon wrote one time? He said, the worldling... Go to Psalm 31 before I read this quote. I'm going to read this quote in a Bible verse and close. But I hope there's an encouraging thought to go out on. That God is always working, even when you don't see Him. Even when it looks like He's forgotten you. God is always there and God is always working. Psalm 31. Psalm 31, thank you. Psalm 30, I'm sorry. Psalm 30, I'm glad you asked. Right, Psalm 30. We read this at the prayer meeting on Tuesday. It was a great blessing. Uh, You know, before we look at the psalm, here's what Spurgeon said. He said, The worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty. Oh, I'm so rich and I'm so healthy and I'm so good. And now he's, oh, oh, yes, thank God. Thank God. Oh, yes, yes, thank God. God bless. God bless America. God bless. But the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour, and believes that all is well. That's how we're supposed to be. I don't say I'm all there. I'm not saying I'm there. But that's where we're supposed to be. Lord, I'm trying to do right. I don't know what's going on. I can't trace you, but I'm going to trust you. You can't be malicious. I know you're not sadistic. I know you don't want to hurt me, and you never hurt me. So I'm going to trust that the deliverance is coming. And in Psalm 30, verse 9, we see that picture here in David, who was hounded, who was chased, who was a righteous man, who was persecuted by the enemy. And he says in Psalm 30, verse number 9, at the dedication of his house, when all was made right, he says, What profit is there in my blood when I shall go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me, Lord. Be thou my helper. You know what he says? 
Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth. Remember when Mordecai walked with sackcloth, right? Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Brother, sister, if you trust the Lord, you will see the night turn to day. Just hang in there and hang on. And when you can't trace His hand, trust His heart. Let's pray. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for the great book of Esther. Thank you for the truths.